the National Archives podcast series, NDACA, the National Disability Arts Collection and Archive, presented by Tony Heaton, OBE. This talk was recorded on the 3rd of December 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. I should say that it's December the 3rd today, which is deemed to be International Year of Disabled People, so 21 years since the first International Day of Disabled People initiated by the United Nations. Coincidentally, it's the day I became a disabled person. I'm always reminded of this wonderful fact. I got there before they did, actually, so I'm arrogant enough to think that they may have named it after me. So, I work for an organisation called SHAPE. It was set up 37 years ago by a woman called Gina Levite. And it's a long story, and I'm not going to tell it, but essentially she was walking in a park with her young daughter and on the edge of the park there was a school for disabled kids and one of the disabled kids said I'd love to be able to skip and dance like your daughter and she was a teacher of dance and she said well there's no reason why you can't because expressive movement is not restricted to people who are not disabled and that was quite a radical thing to do 37 years ago so she went to talk to the headmaster of the school who was quite an enlightened character this is an important archive image now for us because this is Gina Levitt working in this school with disabled kids getting them to explore movement and I wanted also to talk about another organisation called Grey Eye who started a little time after SHAPE and Grey Eye are really a theatre organisation based in London and the one of the co-founders in this image is Nabil Shaban he still works as an actor and he performed at the National Theatre last year in the Emperor Galilean I don't know whether anybody saw that or not it was a fantastic performance and he was the Emperor so it was a key role for him but he laughingly says the first time he was on stage at the National was 20 years ago so there's a big gap between his performances there and we'll talk a little bit later on about the barriers to, um, to the arts. Another reason for showing Nabil Shaban was, well, it gave me the opportunity to show you this portrait, which is uh, painted by a disabled artist called Tani Raba. And this image is in the National Collection. And it's a great portrait. What Tanya's done is painted portraits of a number of the key people who have been involved in the disability arts movement over the last 25, 30 years. And I'll talk a bit more about the archive when I've sort of set this scene. Well, the third organisation that I wanted to talk about was Heart and Soul. I don't know whether anybody's heard of Heart and Soul. They work predominantly with learning disabled people and, again, often around music performance. And Heart and Soul started as part of a piece of work that SHAPE did uh, many years ago, which was to work with young learning disabled people and to think about um, musical instruments, performing, writing songs, and a project that ran for about a year. And one of the guys that we employed to run that project said, I'd really like to carry on doing this. So he set up the company Heart and Soul. So it's, it feels great, really great for me as the chief executive of SHAPE to know that what we did in the very pioneering early days of SHAPE, there's been splinter organisations set up to carry on uh, the different bits of, of pioneering work that we did. This is Heart and Soul performing in the House of Commons, which is where they launched. That's a pretty great place to, uh, to launch your first, your first record, I guess, isn't it? And they're still going really strong. 
and they perform down the South Bank. They have something called the Beautiful Octopus Club, which if you're ever down the South Bank when that's on, please do stick your head around the door and go in. It's, people don't realise that it's... I think it's about getting out into the mainstream. So if you're wandering down there and you see all these wonderful lights and hear this music and wander in, it takes a while to realise that it's predominantly um, young people with learning disabilities who are enjoying their a night out. So there are three organisations that set up over 30 years ago and started to establish the idea of disabled people taking a more active part in creativity. And what we say is that disability arts grew out of the disability rights movement, which again was uh, started in the UK really. And that's the wider struggle by disabled people for equality and the right to participate in society. So also in the archive are a series of photographs from various protest marches that took place before disabled people had any sort of legislation to establish our rights. So here's a bunch of people outside the House of Parliament brought the traffic to a halt and did this regularly because public transport wasn't accessible even though it was called public transport. And what we said is rights not charity, we also <coughs> said things like nothing about us without us and we also protested, you know when you could get up to Downing Street you could actually get to the front door and people thought there was a benign protest by some people in wheelchairs and then we started throwing red paint on Downing Street and on the doors and this is the, the signified the blood of disabled people and a lot of people got arrested and people were dragged off with false legs appearing out the bottom of their trousers as they were dragged down the streets by the police getting thrown in the back of uh, whatever they were called in those days. SHAPE hosted the first National Disability Arts and Culture Seminar in 1991, which is about 21, 22, three years ago. And again, this, is in a, this photograph is in our archive because there's a number of people in this picture who are still highly involved in the movement. And uh, I'm in this picture, and you've got to try and guess which one I am. It pops up again later on because I refer to a couple of people in it. So I'll sort of whet your appetite with this image and uh, you have to guess which one's me. But there's a couple of key protagonists in this photograph which, which I'll talk about. And I was talking to David Heavey, who's now the director of the Endaka project, about it. And I was showing him this picture and he said, we just didn't realise then, did we? We were just sort of having a bit of fun. And I guess we were, really. Anyway, this guy, Vic Finkelstein, was the leading academic that talked about the social model of disability. And here he talks about the last 30 years this was in 2001, and he said we've come a long way because what happened is that disability was viewed as a medical problem. And what Vic Finkelstein and other academics and activists argued is that disability wasn't a medical problem at all. It was a social issue. It was a social construct. And what he said, and he wrote very eloquently about this for the Open University, and he died last year, I think, or the year before, but certainly recently. But a lot of his work and his writing is in the, the Leeds University Archive, uh, Disability Studies Archive, and it's a fascinating, um, you know, if you want to look it up, it's a fascinating place to read some of his writing. He was South African. He played an active part in the anti-apartheid movement, and then he, he had a spinal injury and came to this country for treatment. And uh, he was an incredibly interesting guy. So he and another guy called Mike Oliver, who's still alive, and they were both in the picture I showed you earlier, they talked about the fact that disability was a social construct, that you couldn't fix the person. So 
an impairment that's permanent isn't going to be changed by medical intervention. But what we can do as a society is change the way that the environment is constructed. So we can legislate to make buildings accessible. We can legislate to make public transport accessible. We can do things within our, our working environment to level the playing field so that we can uh, integrate de disabled people into the workforce. So what I'm saying here is that those sort of ideas influenced and inspired a generation of younger disabled activists. So here we got a picture of a, a woman and this was on a protest by disabled people marching for access to public transport in 1996. And it's an interesting juxtaposition by, between the, the woman in the foreground who's called Julie McNamara. She's a, a, quite a well-known playwright and disability activist. And she would describe herself as a mental health system survivor. And she was originally sectioned by police officers, rather like the one behind her, who um, you know, fought with her, subdued her, locked her up and took her away and got her sectioned. And there's this wonderful Samaritan's bus passing in the background which says everybody's okay but me. And that sort of fits in nicely with this idea of, you know, everybody's okay and can get on a double-decker bus except me. So again, great photograph for us to have in the archive. And again, these are some of the images of the Rights Not Charity marches, which again, whilst it's a disability arts archive, I think it's really important to put some sort of historical context behind it. And I'm sure we all know that all the equality strands have been subsumed within the Equality Act 2010. And I'm sure you know all about that and I'm not going to bore you with legislation. But I am going to talk about the National Disability Arts Collection and Archive, which is something that I've wanted to do for a very long time. And we've now got some Heritage Lottery funding to do that. We've got just short of £100,000 for phase, first phase development grant and then at the end of this well sort of the middle of next year we should have done all the feasibility and got all the planning in place and we should be able to embark on the second stage of it so there's nine partners involved in this initiative and we're going to develop a dispersed archive between the partners and the place where we're going to keep most of the objects from the collection will be the new University of Buckinghamshire which is a relatively new building. It's got a fantastic library. They've already dedicated some storage space for us and started to archive some of our materials in their library. Grey Eye, who I talked about earlier, are also a partner. What we're doing in phase one is helping organisations like Grey Eye and Shape to articulate their archive of materials, make sense out of it, decide what's important, and sort of put that together. And we've recruited... Baroness Jane Campbell, I, I'm not saying that correctly, I think I'm supposed to call her Baroness Campbell of Surbiton, or Jane Baroness Campbell of Surbiton. The, my problem is I've always known her as Jane. So she, what she said is that disability arts movement has always been and always will be a key driver in the fight for disability rights, and that the Sendaka project demonstrates how vital the disability arts is to our liberation informs our continued struggle to be equal citizens and she says it's long overdue and very welcome and she's fighting for this in the House of Lords which is brilliant for us the other person I've talked about is Vic Finkelstein he's in the front row he's the wheelchair user in the dark jacket with the dark glasses on and Mike Oliver is next to him in the, uh, the wheelchair user next to him and the guy behind Mike Oliver 
doing the Elvis lookalike is David Heavey, and he is the director. He was recruited in as project director for this Endaka project, and he's well qualified to do that. He's been a filmmaker of some renown. He was one of the first cohort disabled apprentices into BBC uh, probably 20 odd years ago, and he's been a very important photographer and filmmaker within the disability movement. And he made a series of films yeah, in year 2000, which was called The Disabled Century. And there were six films for BBC Two, which looked back over the early 1900s right through to 2000, and looked at disability throughout that history. So you may have them somewhere in the archive, and they're certainly on the BBC archive. I think they're about 50 minute films. And I think he got sort of six, 8,000 people watching those films, so really quite important. And this is a film that David made for BBC called Freak Out, and this was one of Stills' image is from that. And I think what, he's, what he was doing here, this is a, the carcass of a, a goat, actually, in a very old ministry wheelchair. All the images of disabled people for charity were always filmed in black and white, and they were always very dramatic and very sort of, always had a, a lone violin playing in the background to maximise the amount of pathos, pity. This film, Freak Out, was an ironic look at the way non-disabled people see disabled people. So some of the things that are in the archive. This photographer, Belinda Mason, Australian, she made a series of images which I exhibited at Holton Lee about 10 years ago. Fantastic series of prints, cool friend or foe. So you've got a scrapyard behind, you've got this naked man, sort of perfection personified, and he's stood on one disabled person and he's got another disabled person in his arms and you don't know whether he's rescuing one or whether he's, I think he's throwing us on the scrap heap. But again, a, a really interesting image. Her series of images were fantastic. And these are some of the organisations that are involved as partners in the archive. An artist called Colin Hambrook, though, edits an online journal called Disability Arts Online. And there's a huge amount of information in Disability Arts Online that's archived from exhibitions and artists, and uh, they were selecting work for the collection. This is another piece that's in the collection by an artist called Aidan Shingler, and it's called Medication Time. It's exhibited like, rather like this clock on the wall in this room, so you see it in place as a clock, but when you look closely, you'll see that there's a, on every five minutes there's a, a red and white capsule which, which sort of refers to his uh, chemical regime. So he's uh, classed as a, you know, his impairment is schizophrenia and he doesn't work now as an artist, but he explored issues around schizophrenia in an incredibly thought-provoking way. And uh, I exhibit his work openly. And the key piece in the window was a huge statue of Buddha in satin Buddha's lap was a wisdom toothbrush in a box and it just said wisdom toothbrush on it which I always thought was quite a wonderful image but this is a wonderful image and people just walk past it and just see it as a clock Liberty Festival has been going on in the city it was in Trafalgar Square and it's I think it's in its 10th or 11th year and it was at the Olympic Park this year so again really important for the archive to have some of the documentation some of the posters some of the ephemera from all these uh, activities and of course the really important thing about this is when we look back it tells us who was on the bill so we can see who was the important artists what sort of work was going on you know it's very interesting because some of those people are still working I'd, Bill Shannon I noticed his name 
he's um, the stickmeister or something like that. But he dances, he break dances on, on arm crutches. You've got to see him. If you Google Bill Shannon, he'll come up. But he does these amazing American guy. He does this sort of talk, and then he goes into this dance routine with arm crutches where he sort of spins around on them. And very interesting. This series of road signs by an artist called Caroline Cardus, these are in the archive. They're real road sign size, and they're made out of road sign materials. And again, I exhibited this There's a, to the gallery at Holton Lee. There's a, a road that's about a mile long, and we planted these signs all the way up, which really confused people. So they said things like this, warning people using sign language ahead. As a picture of somebody in a wheelchair being patted on the head, and the sign said, caution, no patronising. Uh, there was a blue sign that says, Man on the Moon, 1969, access to public transport, 2025. So... You get the picture. Um, and there's performance art. And this is called The Screaming Beatles. This, the guy in the middle is called Aaron Williamson, who is a deaf artist. And the woman to, my, to your right is Catherine Aragnello. And they work together. They're called 15mm films. And again, you'll see them on YouTube. Catherine Aragnello, Aaron Williamson. They do some amazing performance art. This is called Screaming Beatles. It's billed as a Beatles tribute act. And they don't tell people what it's about, but they get people to come into a room like this and pay to go along. And they come on stage dressed as the Beatles in these, you know, with the mop-top wigs and the grey suits on. And uh, they get on stage with instruments, and then they scream at the audience for three minutes. And the audience is stunned into complete silence while they scream for three minutes. And then they stop by which time then the audience have figured it out and they scream back. And then when they stop, they scream for another three minutes. And this goes on till they get an encore at the end of the night where they go into one of their old favourite screaming songs. And a lot of their work is very dark and very humorous and very... Um, Catherine Aranello did a, a performance outside begging for money to, to send her to Dignitas, which is the... Swiss clinic, the euthanasia clinic, and uh, got in, involved in conversation with people saying, you know, give me some money because I need to go. And they were saying things like, I can understand that. You know, if I was like you, I'd want to kill myself too. So here's an extra couple of quid. And uh, of course, she didn't really. But it made a great film. Let's hope you're not in it. This is a full-size piece called Sitting Without Purpose by an artist called James Lake who makes, well, almost all the work I've ever seen him do is made out of cardboard, which is a fantastic medium for disability. And I said, James, there's wonderful philosophical nature of your work where you use cardboard, nobody looks at the cardboard box, it's all about what's inside it. You know, we throw cardboard away. You know, it, it signifies this notion of disability as disposable. People walk past us and don't see us. And he said, do you know what, Tony? I just use it because it's cheap. Anyway, but he makes great work. Fantastic work. We did a project also with the Royal College of Physicians, and this work will go in the archive. I don't know whether anybody's seen this. It's called Reframing Disability. And uh, there's a booklet. It's on the Royal College of Physicians' website, and it's on SHAPE's website. But it's a series of portraits of disabled people from the 17th and 18th centuries. And we got two disability historians to work with us on the project. We brought 20, 19 or 20 contemporary disabled people together to talk about what their lives were like now as disabled people and how we thought 
that these historical figures, what their lives might have been like. And the historians took up some really interesting stuff. There was um, Chang and Eng Bunker, the so-called Siamese twins. So they were in it. They were married, I think they had about 14 kids between them. It's a really fascinating um, life stories. Poem by Simon Brissenden, he's, who's no longer alive. I thought he was a brilliant poet, actually, and I think it's really important that we've got written work like that as part of the archive. So it's not just about visual arts, it's about poetry, it's about plays that Nabil Shaban has written, it's about film, it's about photographs, and it's about ephemeral material. And in the early days, there was lots of, there was lots of cabaret where people could get up and play a song or read a poem. And, uh, and he, I think his work's online as well, and I think he wrote a couple of books of published poetry. And lots of disabled people will talk about medical intervention that's not necessarily help, <coughs> helped them in their lives. I remember talking to somebody, with a person of restricted growth, who said as a kid they spent every summer in hospital having their legs broken and bones grafted so that they could go out of hospital at the end of summer uh, an inch and a half taller than when they went in. And they were sort of saying, well, the difference between being four foot five and four foot six and a half doesn't really make much difference. And what I did is miss every summer holiday, so I never got any of that life. But that's what my parents thought was the right thing to do for me. And of course, history continues. So some of the work that Shape's doing now, this is something called the Shape Open, it's an open exhibition and we promote work by disabled artists and some of this work will go in the archives. This was, the last Shape Open was at the Nunnery Art Gallery in Bow. And the guy in the middle of this picture here is Yinka Shonabari. He's a fantastic artist, he's also a disabled person. He's the patron of the Shape Open and his work is featured here at the Greenwich Maritime Museum, but it was also on the fourth plinth, and Yinka was shortlisted for the Turner Prize. So he's quite an iconic and very important part of disability arts and disability history. And Adam Reynolds, who was also in that photograph, who again died seven years ago now, his archive is really important to us because he's not around anymore, but his family and friends collected some money, which they gave to Shape, and said, can you do something with this? on the year that he died uh, after his memorial. And we set up a bursary scheme, which he's still running seven years later. We raised the funds for this, but it's aimed at a mid-career disabled artist. And we, ne we negotiate a three-month bursary with some of the key mainstream galleries in this country. The artist gets a £5,000 bursary from Shape. We support them if they need support, and the gallery works with us. The bursary started at the Camden Arts Centre, and went to the Blue Coat Gallery in Liverpool. It then went to Spike Island in Bristol, and then went up to the Baltic in Gateshead. And it's now back at Spike Island in Bristol. And I'm pretty sure it's going to the New Art Gallery Walsall the year after that, and I'm pretty certain it's going to the Turner Contemporary in Margate the year after that. So we're now starting to get a cycle of bookings for this three-month bursary. This is the first winner. Naomi Lackmeyer, so her work's in the archive, and this is called Experimenting Happiness. Naomi Lackmeyer's got a website, we're doing a piece of work with her right now, so if you want to look at her work it should be up there. Sally Booth, she was the second winner, her work's up in the blue coat. Aaron Williamson, who was the Screaming Beetle, he won it at Spike Island. He made a very witty set of objects which was called the Afligari Project. 
and he made a series of artefacts which he said were the artefacts that he discovered as Dr. Williamson and these were from the 16th century this was a wandering tribe of mendicants all disabled people who were sort of wandering the earth and saw this meteorite fall to the ground and he used his five grand to buy a meteorite from Argentina off eBay completely mad thing to do which he then melted down at a foundry in Bristol and he made a porringer out of this which, which went in the mouth but he made all these weird objects some of which are sort of dotted around but for his exhibition he showed them in a museum case and they were all labelled you know there was a, a ram's horn gold leafed as a big hearing aid and there was these amazing shoes with the built up heels and crutches and all these various disability related aids and equipment and of course they were all completely fictitious but he wrote this pamphlet and there were lots of people looking around the exhibition saying they, as historians they didn't know anything about this wandering tribe they couldn't find anything at all about it on the archives and it was great I won't bore you with that it's a little bit about how shape works but it is about this notion of a virtuous circle and how we bring people in and give people opportunities at different bits of their career. And here's a few, this is another piece by James Lake, the big cardboard head. So this is huge. It's a portrait of a disabled opera singer. And we exhibited this at Shape in the City, which was a pop-up gallery. We took over a huge office block in the city of London, 60,000 square feet. We put about 150 works of art in there. And also this, which was Gold Run Remix, which was a 2012 commission. So we got some money from Heritage. This is what Carol said about us. So delighted to give support to shape some ambitious and thoughtful plans to tell the story of disability arts, a story that's never been properly told before now. And this is timely after the Paralympics. And of course, hoping that the Paralympics taps into the legacy. So again, it's an incredibly timely that we've, you know, that we've got the funding for this, this project. And again, these are some of the images from Unlimited, which was down on the South Bank, but a lot of activity took place. And SHAPE was involved with LOCOG and the Arts Council in funding and supporting the 29 commissioned pieces of work. This is Sue Austin, called Creating the Spectacle, and she made a film out in the Red Sea where she actually propels this wheelchair. And again, amazing if you want to see it. There's lots of stuff on YouTube. She's actually, as we speak, in NASA negotiating with the space agency to see if she can actually if they can help her go into space in this wheelchair and um, god knows what will happen at the end of that discussion but you know a very determined and very driven disabled artist and i showed this when sue austin was a student she sent this image to me when i was the director at alton lee to put in the open exhibition and she was amazed that we selected it i couldn't believe it when i saw it i thought it was the most audacious image you know this woman in the swimming pool in a wheelchair why what's that about so the unlimited commissions were really important and unlimited commissions went to uh, there was a, an international component which the British Council developed a series of unlimited international events here's Grey Eye again 30 years later performing on these amazing sway poles I don't know that anybody saw them at the uh, French and Docklands festival and they were also in the Olympic Park earlier this year. And the Arts Council thought Unlimited was so successful that they've just offered one and a half million pounds 
towards the next phase. They're calling it Unlimited 2. And Shape pitched for this work, and we partnered with an organisation called Arts Admin, and we won that commission. So for the next three years, we'll be supporting and developing another series of commissions. So the history continues, and Alan Davy, the Chief Executive of the Arts Council, said in the press release when we got the one and a half million to develop this project that supporting diversity in arts and culture is the right thing to do and that the Unlimited 2012 was a real success story uh, enabling disabled artists from across the UK to showcase their talent as part of 2012 and we're going to now build on that success. So an archive, a body of historical work and new work to come for the archive. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.